Today's reading begins in 1 John 3:11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has an eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask we receive from him because we keep his commands commandments and do what pleases him and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us this is the word of the Lord right if you would have a seat God and Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that you have spoken to us. Uh, Lord, you tell us not to neglect the public reading of your word, and so we haven't uh, this morning. Lord, we wish that we could see with your eyes the great power that is in it and the way that it changes hearts, uh, Lord, but we will be satisfied to see uh, the ways that people are changed here in this room. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and pray your power on the word by the Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, the text that's in front of us this morning seems uh, somewhat discombobulated. There are, are you know, parts of it that don't necessarily uh, feel like they go together, but I assure you that they do. In fact, I assure that it doesn't just uh, go together, but that it actually meets us where we are at today, here and now. I see in the American church two impulses that I think that we can recognize as uh, at least foolish and maybe at most sinful. There are things within the church, two impulses. The first is to make friends with the world. I think right now, uh, part of my job as a pastor is to uh, protect the doctrine, is to protect the flock. It's to be a shepherd like the great shepherd. And so on a routine basis, we talk about the two things that I see pulling the church, uh, the real church, at its seams right now. One of those things is, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, a uh, social justice gospel. It's kind of uh, taking on some of the woke parts of culture, attaching Jesus to it, and being with it, as though uh, that is a true, unadulterated gospel, but I assure you that it is not. We try to make friends with the world by diluting doctrines, by minimizing the meanings of certain things in Scripture, by creating commonality with the world. 
Now, not all of that stuff is bad. God quite likes justice. I like justice. I don't feel like it really needs a qualifier to say that it is a certain type of justice. It is either just or it is unjust, but there is something in our world right now that is trying to pull the church towards worldliness, and we are all too glad often to be either foolish or sinful and make way for it. But the second is like it, it just has a completely different tone, and that is to be antagonistic of the world. So whereas the first impulse means to make friends with it, the second is to antagonize the world. It's to be intentionally offensive and off-putting. Many of us know Christians that very much find their way into this. They're not winsome, they're not loving, they, uh, they very much antagonize the world. They're offensive, they're anti-intellectual. Uh, a lot of times it's uh, something where when confronted with real facts, rather than uh, trying to dive in and trying to learn about this world that God has created, uh, we retreat into kind of anti-intellectual behavior. And I think that the world sees it for the cheapness that it is and a lot of times it finds itself expressed primarily politically, just like the first one. We see um, Christians more and more often being uh, uh, described as being evangelicals, not in the sense that we share the evangelion, that we're sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the grave, conquering over all things, uh, installing of his kingdom, and one day to return and fully reveal it to all of us, rather than pronouncing it as that, for being known as evangelicals in that way, we're increasingly described as evangelicals, a political class. Maybe uh, you've heard more and more people describing them as uh, Christian nationalists, here, too, I don't like my uh, definitions qualified. It's not social justice, it's just justice. I don't need to be described as a Christian nationalist. I need to be described by Christ as a Christ follower, as a disciple of Christ. You may very much love your country. You may very much be a nationalist, but why in the world would we put those two things together as if they are their own religion? Well, because oftentimes it is. And we mean to say so. Here, we want to be about justice. We want to be Christians. The problem with the first one is that uh, there uh, pretends in it that there aren't cosmic differences between believers and unbelievers. We, we like to pretend while making friends with the world by following that impulse that God does not speak to everything in creation, that he doesn't say, create things as they are and then describe them as they are and then ask and call us to follow him as he is and to live a specific kind of life. Christianity tries to run away oftentimes from uh, believing wholeheartedly that the way that God says that life works best is actually best. So oftentimes, while trying to make friends with the world, we uh, nuance and we carve off those pieces and passages that we don't, well, like, just so that we can try to make friends in the world, as though if we were going to do that, that they would be more friendly with us. So that's what the first one pretends to do. The second one forgets or even disdains the mission of the church. When Jesus Christ comes uh, and is risen from the grave, he says, go make disciples of all nations teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. We actually have a mission, and to pretend like we don't or to even minimize it or to hate the world is to hate our mission. It is very difficult to not want to share the good news of the gospel while also hating the people of the world. We ought to be defined by love in but not of the world, as we have been saying time and time again as we go through First John. 
We forget that this mission that we are on, and we also forget the grace that is actually given, that is, uh, that is meted out, that is given to a wayward, wayward world. But then we get the, ver- uh, the voice of Jesus actually speaking into this. We don't want to be hated. The first doesn't want to be hated. The uh, second one almost intentionally wants to be hated by being unwinsome. What does Jesus say in John 15, verse 18? He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But I chose you. I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, the problem with both of these first two things is not the way that they effectuate or actuate. It's the fact that they miss the entire point. The world is going to hate you. Not not even though you try to make friends with it, even though you maybe try to antagonize it, the world is going to hate you, and Jesus gives us the reason why, and it's because it hates him. It hates him, it hates his father. So we need to put away this impulse to try to make friends with the world. We also need to put away the uh, impulse to try to antagonize the world and realize that Jesus tells us that regardless of your friendliness or your antagonization, the world will hate you. Why? Because it hates him. And for many of us, that's uncomfortable. It's like, well, I don't want to be hated by the world. Jesus tells you that if you follow him, you will be hated by the world. In one way or another, the world will hate you. And when we look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24, we discover this. We discover that God's love abides in Abel, but condemns, actually condemns Cain's contempt. The love of God actually abides in Abel, but condemns Cain's contempt. And we find this by looking at a distinction at love and at conscience. We first discover this morning that there is a dangerous distinction that we need to make. The second is that we need to understand the contours of God's love. We need to know something about what godly love is. And then finally, we need to know how to have a clean conscience, how to actually have a confidence in our conscience. That's what we are going to discover this morning. Verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. John, now in 1 John, has time and time again emphasized the first principles, the first things that they were taught. He's writing to all of these churches in Asia, and he's telling them something about the original message that they were taught. Why? Because there were, teach, uh, there were teachers that had grown up, false teachers that had come in and ransacked these churches. They came in with special knowledge, saying, if you really want to be a true Christian, you've got to know something else. You've got to know something in addition to what Paul and what John and what these apostles taught you first. These teachers are telling you to attach something to the gospel. And we know and understand immediately that that's what we deal with on a day-to-day basis. It may be different. It may go under different names. But what we need to know is that we are not to follow these false teachings, this special knowledge, but we need to remember the one true gospel. Many of us uh, grew up over the last uh, few decades um, a, a product of something that was happening in the church. I think that we will continue to recognize that the early 2000s, in the early 2000s here in America, there was a revival. 
It maybe didn't feel much like it. It didn't have like the same tone of the first and second great awakenings that we read about in history class or the things that we know about from some of our early, you know, kind of uh, fathers of the faith here in America when we read about them. But there was, there was a revival here in America. And now we are starting to see that described as kind of the young, restless, reformed movement. God's Spirit, through His Word, actually energized a a, a group of people, most of us, many of us in churches where we were learning and confronted with good doctrine. Maybe uh, boomers and Gen Xers hadn't really uh, uh, claimed or delivered an inheritance of the gospel, the full gospel to us. We had grown up in a church, but maybe it had been a little wishy-washy, a little flexible, a little flabby. And for many of us, we were confronted with true doctrine straight out of the Bible, and we became uh, enlivened in our faith. We sat through and experienced, and in many ways, this church is an expression or a ripple of what had happened in the early 2000s. For many of us, that's our story, not all of us. But what we need to know is that during that time, we were receiving the true gospel. We weren't receiving it from uh, John in particular. He wasn't coming and speaking it to us, but we certainly were delivered it through the word and the spirit enlivened it in us. So many of us grew up hearing the gospel, and now we are facing new Gnostics. And what I want to tell you, what John tells us this morning is, do not be tempted to follow the path of social gospel or Christian nationalism. Don't be tempted to believe in some new gospel. Remember the OG. Remember the old gospel. If you're not, you will be in danger. We need to remember the gospel that was delivered to us at first. But first, we've got to make a dangerous distinction. These verses tell us right off the bat to love one another. Love one another. This is going to be critical, crucial to John's message. We need to remember that John was the disciple that Jesus loved. He was BFFs with Jesus, and now he has all of these things that he learned from Jesus, that he received in the Spirit, that he understands now that he's trying to deliver not just to the early churches there in Galatia and Capernaum and all of these small towns like Ephesus, but to you this morning. And we need to make a dangerous distinction that has something to do with the way that we love or do not love one another. It says love one another, and then what's the next thing that it says? We should not be like Cain. You should not be like Cain. What does he mean by that? We're going to spend some time kind of unpacking that, but we need to know that we are not to be like Cain. Why? Because he was of the evil one, and that caused him to murder his brother. Maybe you remember this story from Genesis chapter 4. If you've never heard the story of Cain and Abel, go and read it. We don't have time this morning to kind of exposit that whole thing. It is deep. It is rich. But ultimately, our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, they had two sons. Not only two sons, but these were the two sons. And they had Cain and they had Abel. And as they grew up, Abel became a shepherd. He watched after sheep. He remembers hearing about how his father and mother, when they fell into sin, God, the father, uh, killed some animals and clothed them, actually clothed their nakedness. And now here he is actually shepherding sheep. I don't think that that's an accident. That's something that we get as a part of scripture, as a description of what he spends his time doing. Then Cain is a farmer. He's bringing produce out of the ground. And when it comes time for them to make offerings, what does Abel do? Abel doesn't just do what, he, uh, what, what is convenient to him because he shepherded sheep. He remembers what 
God did for his mother and his father. And so he makes a sacrifice. He makes a sacrifice of a lamb. Then Cain, uh, we're not told why. We're not told uh, the integral parts of the story. There are lots of musings. There are lots of theological doctrine that can kind of be pulled out. But he makes an offering of the produce that he is farming. And he offers it up. And all that we know is that somewhere in his heart, there is unrighteousness. There's unrighteous attitudes about how he is delivering that up. Uh, if anybody tells you that they know precisely the difference between these two, they don't. But what we know is, is that God received Abel's offering because it was made in righteousness, it was made in faith, it was made in holiness, and he did not look with favor on Cain's offering. Not because there was something wrong with the produce, but because there was something in his heart that didn't want to give up and yield unto God. And what we find is, is that Cain became angry. He was of the evil one, and so we know and understand that he murdered his brother. But before murdering his brother, God comes to him and tries to intervene into this. And in chapter 4, verse 7, God says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. It's actually going to work against you. It's going to pull you away, but you must rule over it. You've got to turn away from the sin, the anger, the hatred of your brother that's in your heart and then it says that Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And when God comes to him, he says, uh, Cain, where is your brother? He goes, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And, and God, knowing exactly what happened, looks to the blood lying on the ground and says, the blood is crying out to me. It takes one generation for murderous hate to result and exactly what God knew that it would when he said that, he, that sin was crouching and that its desire was contrary, but you must rule over it. He says, your brother's blood is crying to me for the ground. And then he curses Cain. So if you read that story, you're going to uh, ask a lot of questions. It's a very curious story. There's a lot of theological depth there. But one of the questions that you will want to ask is, how do you understand it? Why did he actually murder his brother? And John, in uh, chapter 3, verse 12, if you'll look at it, clarifies for us in the Spirit. He says, and why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Hateful, evil brotherhood versus righteous, loving brotherhood. Cain versus Abel. John is bringing out this distinction to bear for a specific purpose, for the church to know something. It'd be easy to read these verses and think that they don't really go together, that they don't flow, but that's not true at all. He starts off by talking about love of brothers, the love that brothers and sisters have in Jesus Christ, the real, actual brotherhood and sisterhood that we talked about last week in adoption through Jesus Christ is important to understanding why now he's going to be talking about Cain, but he does. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. There was something in Cain that, that actually was distinct from his brother, that was actually, um, that was covetous of what his brother had. Cain looked at the favor that his brother had 
and he had contempt for his brother. He was not filled with love. He was filled with hateful contempt. And here John is trying to tell you something. He's trying to tell you about the love that you should have for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And he makes a distinction between Cain, who is hatefully evil, and Abel, who is righteously loving. John brings this uh, distinction to bear for the church because in verse 13, he doesn't want us to be surprised. Do not be surprised, brothers, when the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life. We have passed from death into life. Why? Because these verses say, because we love the brothers. And no one loves and also abides in death. If you are a person that experiences no love of the brothers, then you're actually abiding in death, not life. John chapter 13 says this. Jesus is going to tell you something about what it is to be one of his disciples. He says, by this, all people, how many people? All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Here we see John and Jesus is teaching, uh, meshing up, they're not just commingling, they're like uh, uh, solidifying and complementing one another. We can have assurance that what John is saying is right because it is actually what Jesus tells us as well, and it's focusing on the love that we have for one another. And what this is going to do is bolster our knowledge of why the world might despise or hate us, why we might face persecution. Now, for many of us, this is an uncomfortable topic. We're like, why are we talking about this? I don't feel all that much like the world hates me. And there may be many reasons for that. But what you need to know is that at a root level, the world is going to be a contemptuous cane. It's going to look at the favor that we have from the Father. It's going to look at the sacrifice of Jesus that brings about grace for us. And whether they know, acknowledge, or repent of it or not, they're going to have contempt for you. There's a dangerous distinction here, as it were. 1 John 3 says, When the canes of the world see your love, they will know and they will hate you. That might sound strong. Let's go stronger. Last week, what we saw is is that Satan has children, and Satan's children, like Cain, have a jealous contempt for our God's graciously given love. The world is going to hate you. Don't try to make friends with it. Don't try to antagonize it. Just know that because you're a receiver of grace, there's going to be contempt that we have for the world or that the world has for us. But secondly, we don't just want to make a distinction. We want to know what love is. We now know that the world will hate us. But what do we know? What do we need to know about love? Verse 16 says this, by this we know love. Have you ever wanted to know what love is? I feel like we go to uh, weddings all the time and we hear about how patient and loving and kind and not bog- uh, you know, braggadocious or any of those things. But here we have it for a different purpose. By this, we know love. What does real love look like? What does gospel love look like? What we discover in 1 John chapter 3 is that gospel love is sacrificial, it is generous, it is active, it's lived out, and it is true. Firstly, by this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 
This is getting very specific. The first thing that we need to know about love is that it is sacrificial. It's sacrificial in some kind of uh, amorphic way. No, in a specific way. It's sacrificial in the way that Jesus sacrificed himself. A part of himself? No, his whole self was sacrificed. How do we know love? How do we know the contours of love? How do we define it? How do we know what love looks like? We look at Jesus. We look at Jesus. We look at his sacrifice on the cross. And what we see here is, is that Abel is a type. He's a righteous brother. He has the Father's favor. He makes the right sacrifice. And Cain's contempt leads to blood and it cries out. And what we see is, is that here is how we know love. It's not that Abel was perfectly righteous, that he was the perfect brother, that he made the right sacrifice, and that he was unlike Cain. That's not the point here. What we hear is, is that by this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life. What we see is, is that God's love abides in Abel. In the Old Testament, we get all of these types we get all of these uh, figures that tell us something about who Jesus is, but there's still just going to be a piece missing. When we look at Abel and we see his righteousness, when we see his sacrifice, what we don't see is him getting rid of sin for all of humanity. Here we see that love through Jesus' sacrifice gets rid of all of it. Why? Because Jesus is the new Abel. He's the righteous son in whom the father is well-pleased and has favor, who becomes the sacrifice. He doesn't offer a sacrifice. He is and becomes the sacrifice. Why? So that we might die like Abel died? No. So that we might live so that we might live in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus is the new and perfect Abel. What is the contour of love that we need to know? By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. So Jesus gives us a type by being sacrificial, and he tells us that we need to sacrifice for one another. We need to be generous with one another. That's the second piece. Verse 17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart to him, there is no love in that person. Loving brothers share what they have been given by the Father. All of us are aware of, you know, family dysfunction. And when we see families that uh, a father has plenty but then uh, passes away and there's, uh, you know, sons and daughters and they wrangle, they wrestle, they uh, are hurtful, they're hateful, uh, we all recognize that as evil, right? We want to see sharing. We want to see generosity. If a father shares his good inheritance with brothers and sisters, they ought to be generous with one another. In the same way, here with Jesus Christ, we're given everything. We're given a kingdom. And some of us will have the world's goods, and what we're called to be is generous. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart, there is no love in that person. Loving brothers share what they have. I want for City Church to be a place where generosity is just uh, exuding from this gospel community. I want for City Church to be the kind of place that sacrifices and is generous, that uh, places um, all of the things that we hold in common. If there's anything that I have, I want to share it with you. By God's grace, I think we do this pretty well. 
I think that we see often where one another sacrifices for each other, where brothers and sisters really do share the inheritance, whether it's a kind word of encouragement or helping someone pay a mortgage or uh, helping a family where there's sickness in the house and bringing a meal, whether it is spending time in prayer for one another. I see a lot of generosity here at City Church by God's grace. And you know what I want? I want to see more of it. I want to see city church looking so much like the kingdom of heaven that people couldn't possibly imagine being somewhere else. Why? Because this kind of generosity has to be lived out. Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed. God is not interested in us talking about it just talking about the way that we love one another. The first man to ever tell me that he loved me that wasn't my dad was a man named John Dansby. I'm not even sure that John Dansby liked me all that much, but he loved me a lot. I was kind of a punk kid in our youth group. He was one of the high school student ministry leaders. He was a good man, a great man. I learned a lot from him. And I remember the moment. I don't remember where I was, but I remember the timber and tone of his voice when he told me that he loved me. And it wasn't just, uh, it wasn't something that was deep or sappy. We were just going different directions. And he was like, hey, I love you, brother. And I'd never been told that. I'd never heard other people talk like that, but his brotherly love was extended to me. And you know what? It was shocking. You, you may not have ever grown up without a church that was like that. Here at City Church, I hear one another, just greet one another and tell one another, I love you. But it's not just about words. It's backed up in sacrifice and generosity. What if City Church was known for gospel love and we loved indeed? What if we paid one another's debts off? What if we were the kind of church that uh, really shared intimately and, 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 and were completely exposed with one another in the things that we wrestle with and the questions that we have and all that we received on the other end was like loving, generous acceptance? What if we were the type of people that like wanting to sacrifice for one another, we were not just willing to give up our money, which sometimes is easier, but our time? What if we were willing to give up our presence? What if we not just were able to like share a meal with one another, but what if we were actually present in those moments? It's very difficult for me to be present. Actually, my wife shared that with me this week. She just said, listen, I feel like you've been very preoccupied recently. And you know what? It stung. I did not like it one bit, but she was right. I had to like look back over the last few weeks and realize, you know, I've been unloving because I haven't just been present. What if City Church was the kind of place where we were present with one another, loving, generous, sacrificially accepting of one another? What if City Church was that kind of place where we lived it out? Gospel love, lastly, we see is true let us not love in word or talk, but also in truth. What if this was a place of genuine and authentic belief? And what if we were truthful? Healthy families are genuinely loving in their heart. Healthy families don't just pretend to love one another. Many of us know what a family like that looks like. Our, our parents said they loved us, but they spent more time with the TV than they did with us. A genuine family loves one another authentically, deeply, emotionally, affectionately? What if we were true in our love, deep, committed, 
with one another. It's one of the reasons why we take membership seriously. There's not one right way to take on membership. There are churches that do confirmation for membership. There are churches that don't emphasize it at all. Here at City Church, because of our age, because of the age that we grew up in, because of the non-committal nature of our generation, we have chosen to be pretty committed. We have a membership class coming up next week where we're going to talk about the kind of commitment that we want from you. And if there's a person in this room that goes, I don't want to be committed like that. This is not the church for you. Why? Because we want to be truthful in our love for one another. We want to be authentic. We want to be genuine in our love. Healthy brothers and sisters speak truth to one another. So they're not just deeply committed to one another. They hold one another accountable. They have one another's best interest in mind. One of the best things that you can do to love on your brothers and sisters isn't just to be present in a conversation, but it's to know God's word. Why? Because so often we get together over a meal or coffee and we bear out our souls and the person on the other side, the other, uh, the other person in that conversation just has vacuous kind of things to recite over the other person. Nothing of substance. It's just chicken soup kinds of conversation. And what we want to do is be a people after God's word to where if someone shares something deep and meaningful, you're not just present, but you're able to share truthfully. You're able to love genuinely and authentically with God's word. Brotherly love is sacrificial like Jesus. It's generous like the Father. It's action-oriented. It is genuine. And I want to ask you this morning, is it you? Are you a loving brother or sister in Christ? You might say, well, that's not really my thing. I'm, I'm more outward-oriented. I'm an evangelist. I like, I like to love on the people that are uh, uh, loved less in our city. Wonderful. I hope you are. I hope that that's good. What are you doing here in our family? Are you a good brother or sister? Are you a loving brother or sister to your family in the faith? Lastly, we need to understand that we can have confidence in our conscience This might seem like a non sequitur. It might seem like it doesn't fit, but I assure you it does. Verse 19 says this, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. By this we shall know that we are of the truth, that truth that we just talked about, and we shall reassure our hearts before him. What an interesting thing to need assurance in our heart. Have you known or like, have you recognized the fact that John is really all about confidence and assurance? He's wanting in, uh, to come to us with some really hard things to say, right? Week, after, week in and week out, he's telling us hard things. But you know what he's also interested in? He's interested in your confidence, in your assurance. He revisits this theme time and time again. Why do we need to know that we are of the truth? Why do we need reassurance in our hearts? Because, he says, whenever our heart condemns us. What an interesting thing for him to say. That there is something inside of us that wants to condemn. John assumes that our heart, continuing on in our sin, will try to cause doubt and deceive and try to uh, not allow us to discern. For many of us, we lack assurance. We lack confidence in the gospel. And John wants you to be confident. Why does he say that you lack confidence? Why does he say that you need reassurance? It's because of your own heart. 
What we learn in the gospel is that Jesus Christ dies for us in our sin. But then there's the next question is, do we go on sinning? It's the question we asked last time. And for all of us, every single one of us, John also knows if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. So for those of us who are redeemed in Jesus Christ, who have had all of our sins cast on Jesus Christ at the cross, and then now are living in new life because of Jesus Christ, right away we've got to confront, but I still have sin in me. I've still got gross things in my heart. I still have wicked thoughts in my head. Do I really honestly believe this? How could I if I don't love like this? And what John wants is for you to be confident. John assumes that our heart is going to continue on in sin, that it's going to try to drive us towards doubt, that it's going to try to deceive us. We're told time and time again that our heart is deceitful and wicked above all things, and it's desperately sick. Our deceitful hearts doubt. But verse 20 says, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. We have confidence before God. That's what it says in verse 20. Your heart is deceitful above all things. It's trying to pull you away. It's going to try to deceive you. Verse 23, it says this, we are to believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded. Do you want assurance? Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you want to know that you are a child of God? This is what he commands. Believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commands. And then it says this, whoever keeps his commands abides in God, and God abides in him, so you can have confidence in your conscience. Where your heart wants to deceive you and say, you are no son of God, you are no daughter of God, where your heart wants to say, you haven't loved enough, you haven't kept his commandment enough, what you're going to discover there is a false gospel that you could possibly love enough, that you could possibly be a perfect brother or sister in Christ. And what we already know is that you can't. What Jesus knew is, is that it would take him coming and taking that sin away from you so that you might be a brother or sister for forever. That's what we know. That's what we need to have confidence in. We can have a confident conscience. Where your conscience wants to say you're not good enough, where it wants to say you are not loving enough, that deceit can be conquered. It can be destroyed by God's love for you through Jesus Christ. And we can know it. We can have confidence so that we can speak back to our heart the truth of the gospel. So when you're on your worst day, when you are feeling hate-filled, when you are feeling angry, when you are frustrated in your heart of hearts, you can go back and say, Jesus Christ was perfectly loving. And his love so expressed itself by him coming and sacrificing himself on the cross that there is nothing for me to be afraid of, that there is nothing that is not already conquered for me in Jesus Christ. I can have confidence If you want a great exercise this week, go to the book of 1 John and circle all the times that it talks about assurance and confidence. John, the apostle of John, the best friend of Jesus, wants you to be confident in your faith. If you are in Jesus, you are a brother. Now keep his commandment to put your faith in his name and to love one another. If you keep God's commandment to love Jesus and love your brother and sister, you can have confidence But the confidence first comes by placing your faith in Jesus. 
John is using his letter to show us the relationship between doctrine and deeds and devotion so that we might pursue the divine. That's what his entire book, this entire book is about. Where you believe wrong things, he wants you to have true doctrine. Where you fall flat, he wants to call you up into ethical deeds, Christian deeds. Where we need time to actually be devoted, John is going to show us the way of devotion so that we might feel as sons and daughters of the divine. John wants us to neither love the world nor antagonize it. Rather, God's people are a loving people. But it is precisely this kind of sacrificial and generous and active and truthful love that the world will hate. The world will hate you but it hated Jesus first. Confidence, then, is the Christians to have. Confidence that not only uh, doesn't depend on the world, but actually expects its scorn. Christians have confidence of the Father's love, enough confidence to love one another, and to, verse 22, expectantly ask God for anything because we keep his commands and do what he pleases. Let me pray that over you this morning. God and Father, you are great and glorious. Your love knows no boundaries, not even the boundary of your own son. By this we know love, that Jesus Christ sacrificed himself on a cross. You sent him to do it. He was perfectly loving and obedient to you. Lord, there is no amount of love that we can conjure in ourselves to appease the world or to appease our, our heart that is deceitful, wanting to tell us that we are no children of yours. But Lord, we can have total confidence because you have accomplished all of these things in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that you would allow for City Church to be the kind of place that is confident, that we are confident in the name of Jesus and in the love that we have for our brothers and sisters because we are brothers and sisters. And uh, in that way that our love could be sacrificial, Lord, that uh, our love could be generous, that it could be active and lived out, and that it could be truthful forever. Father, we depend on you for these things, and we expectantly ask you, because if we keep your commands and do what you please, you will withhold nothing righteous from us. God and Father, we pray these immense prayers in the name of Jesus. Amen.